Hello, and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from The Social and Cultural Factors Influencing Attitudes to Abortion by Dr. Laura Adair and Dr. Nicole Lozano. It was first broadcast live on the 9th of March, 2023. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to be doing this um, and talking about our research with you. Um, So I'm going to start us off a bit um, and I'm going to start with a story. Um, I'm going to introduce you to... Uh, one of our research participants, uh, her name was Di- or is Diamond. And so Diamond um, was a participant in the UK arm of our study. And she shared with us that like most people in her, um, like most people, her sex education in school wasn't great. Um, it kind of hearsay, it came from friends. Um, it very rarely included anything about contraception. Um, and she told us that she didn't really have anyone to talk to when she got pregnant um, the first time. She was a teenager. And so she decided to go and talk with her mom about it. And her mom shared with her really common myths. So she was telling her mom that she was thinking about having an abortion. Um, and her mom shared things like, if you have an abortion, you'll never be able to get pregnant again. Um, you won't be able to have any more kids. It's not going to be good for you. And so Diamond decided to have that baby. Um, she shared with us that, uh, while she never regrets her child, she does regret that she listened to her mom because of the way that it changed her life. Um, and that nuanced idea is what we're really focusing on is how we understand abortion. When she told us that she became pregnant again, unexpectedly, uh, at that time, she decided that she didn't give a shit uh, what other people said because she was going to have that termination and felt really confident in that and knowing that it wasn't going to ruin her life. And it's a story that we've heard over and over again in our interviews that folks who've had poor sex education, who become pregnant, um, then make decisions about managing their pregnancy the best they can, but often feel um, uncertain about the choices, especially with the ways that other people tell them what they should or shouldn't be doing. Um, So I am a researcher based in the United States. So I live in Texas, um, specifically rural West Texas. um, So kind of away from a lot of things. Um, And so I think a lot and I talk a lot about abortion policy um, and its far reaching effects, uh, particularly as everyone knows for the United States in the last year or so, it's been uh, pretty rough studying abortion over here. Um, But one study that is really fascinating um, and we refer to frequently is called the Turnaway Study. It was a 10-year study that tracked women who were able to get an abortion and women who had been denied an abortion because they were just past the gestational limit. And the study was done across the United States um, with about 1,000 participants, half who were able to get that abortion and half who didn't. Um, And so some of those key takeaways from that study included that uh, denying women an abortion uh, creates economic hardship and insecurity, which lasts for years. Um, So women who were turned away and then went on to give birth experienced uh, household poverty, an increase in household poverty compared to the others who were able to achieve it. Um, They they were likely to have less uh, expendable income or even basic income to cover expenses uh, like food and housing and transportation. 
And it lowered their credit score, which was, I think, one of the interesting findings. So it increased the amount of debt that they had, um, including negative uh, financial records, bankruptcies, and an increase in evictions. Another finding of that study, another key finding, was that women who were turned away from getting an abortion were more likely to stay in contact with a violent partner. And then they often ended up raising their kids alone. So that included physical violence from the men who were involved in the pregnancies. Um, By five years post a denied abortion, um, they were um, more likely to be pregnant again by that person and continue to be in those physically violent situations. Um, and then they were, again, more likely to raise kids alone, to be forced to raise those kids alone. Another was the general financial well-being um, for folks um, and of their children. And so it was negatively impacted um, their experiences um, in being able to raise their kids, um, having access to the money that was needed, having access to the services Um, that were necessary for their kids and having access to good education for their kids was also a problem. Um, They had worse child development, worse attachments, um, and they were more likely to live below the poverty line. And then one of the final takeaways was that uh, giving birth is connected to more serious health problems than having abortion. So we know that terminations are actually incredibly safe Um, It's more women who are denied an abortion and gave birth had more life-threatening complications like preeclampsia and postpartum hemorrhage. Women that were denied an abortion reported more chronic headaches, migraines, joint pain, um, gestational hypertension, and diabetes. And then there were higher risks of uh, um, death in women uh, post who had been denied an abortion. So just their care all, all over, all around was not good. And so the primary takeaway of the Turnaway study is that women who received a wanted abortion are more financially stable, set more ambitious goals, raise children under more stable conditions, and are more likely to have a wanted child later later, and have a better connection and desire to parent and be ultimately a better parent. Right? So we, um, you know, this, this kind of idea of um, why does why does this matter, right? Um, we talk about abortion a lot, sort of generally speaking, um, and why do we care about it? Why do we care about these findings that they do? We know that when people have access to termination services, they just have better outcomes. Um, but people also tend to feel a lot of stigma and shame about accessing those services, even though abortion is an incredibly common um, procedure, healthcare procedure. And so Dr. Adair and I, Laura and I have spent the last few years trying to understand kind of how that stigma shows up. Why does it show up and how does it impact people? Um, So a couple of quick notes, the vast majority of abortions, about 94% occur in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. So sometimes there's language used about like you're you're killing a baby, things like that. Um, In those first 10 weeks of pregnancy, there's nothing viable or options there. Um, there's two types, typical types of abortion services. So we have medical abortions and that consists of a regimen of pills, um, to take. And then there's a surgical abortion, um, which focuses, which uses a surgical procedure to eliminate the pregnancy from the uterus. We know that abortion on the whole, as I said, is safer than many other reproductive surgeries or procedures, including vasectomies, hysterectomies, and giving birth. Um, and so I'm going to pass it over to Laura to talk some about what we don't know. All right. Uh, Hi, everybody. I did want to make a small correction. I'm pretty sure, Dr. Lozano, you're an associate professor now? 
Uh, not officially until September, unfortunately. Okay. okay. Well, it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. And I wanted to celebrate that achievement because that is a big deal. Um, well, hi, everybody. Thanks so much for being here. I am, uh, I'm really excited to share our work with all of you today and uh, really looking forward to your questions, talking to you about these topics. So we've kind of established why talking about abortion matters and why researching abortion matters. Now, I kind of want to situate our specific research within this sort of broader tapestry of research on abortion. So our big idea is that people want to feel in control of their reproductive decision-making. And when people can control their reproductive decisions, uh, their outcomes are better, right? So feeling empowered to make the choice to terminate a pregnancy really matters. But there's lots of stuff that can affect people's ability to feel empowered to make the choice to terminate a pregnancy. So that's kind of the big idea that we play around with. And we have specific research questions that we interrogate within that umbrella idea that reproductive freedom and empowerment matters, right? So I'll move on to our specific research questions. What is our research about? Um, and our research focuses on kind of two key areas of inquiry where there needs to be more development um, in terms of just what's out there in the research. There is a lot of research, published research out there about abortion stigma and that that is growing, that body of research is growing, but there's surprisingly little research out there about how people form their attitudes about abortion. Um, and really it just kind of reflects some some areas where the research is a little bit oversimplified. So when researchers, or really anybody, talks about abortion attitudes, they tend to position them on this false continuum between pro-choice and pro-life. So we tend to conceptualize the way that people think about abortion and the judgments people make about abortion as placing them somewhere on that continuum. And it doesn't really leave a lot of space for people to have nuanced and even contradictory attitudes about abortion. And then there's a lot that we don't know about the kind of individual values that might encourage people to have more disapproving attitudes towards abortion. So which kind of people are more likely to stigmatize others for their abortion decisions? Or people living in which context? are more likely to stigmatize people or judge people for their abortion decisions. Um, there's surprisingly little work looking at how cultural variation can create variation in how people think about and judge others for their abortion decisions. So we're going to talk about that kind of stuff. Um, and then the other big research question that we're going to address tonight uh, and hopefully give you at least some answers to is what do people want from their abortion care? So there is, there's a huge literature on what constitutes quality abortion care from a medical perspective, right? Like what do you need to have in place to make sure that you're giving someone a medically safe and appropriate termination? But there is relatively little out there in terms of the published literature, what scientists know, uh, there's relatively little out there about what people want from their abortion experience. So from a service user, it perspective, what kind of care do people want? And when people are receiving abortion care, what makes that care positive 
um, what makes that experience a pleasant one and what makes that care um, feel like it's, it's not enough or it's underserving them. So let's start with abortion attitudes. Let's start by talking about some of our research. This is kind of the background literature and, and thought that informed one of our first studies into people's abortion attitudes. Um, we'll get into that later. So what do we already know about reproductive attitudes and specifically attitudes towards abortion? And when I say that, you know, I mean, are people looking at abortion positively or negatively? Are they um, approving or disapproving of abortion? That kind of stuff. So you can think of abortion stigma as kind of subsumed underneath this big umbrella that is, what's your attitude about abortion? Are you cool with it? Are you not cool with it? Um, what do we already know? So it's honestly, it's kind of surprising that people would judge other people for what happens inside their uteruses. Um, abortion experiences are deeply private and deeply personal. So I think it, it makes sense to pose the question, why would that judgment exist in the first place? Right. I use a lot of evolutionary theory and evolutionary perspectives in my work. And from an evolutionary perspective, if you just think about judgment or stigma in general, judging other people for their behavior and controlling their behavior through that judgment has been really useful for humans. Um, if you think about the, the kind of norms that constrain our behavior, like norms around how to prepare food or norms around uh, spitting indoors or chewing with your mouth open. Like we have lots of norms that keep us safe and healthy when everybody decides that they're gonna prepare food in a really specific way, right? Nobody eats raw chicken. We all agree that chicken shouldn't be pink on the inside when we eat it. When we have those kind of norms, it keeps us safe and healthy. And uh, so, judging other people's behavior to force it to conform to a particular standard has enabled humans to achieve all kinds of incredible shit, right? It's really useful. But so there are some domains where having norms and having stigma, right? Having expectations for people's behavior and judging and treating people badly when they don't conform to those expectations. There are lots of places where that has been advantageous and it makes intuitive sense, but having norms and judgment around people's reproductive choices is a little bit more confusing. It's a little bit more opaque. So we want to know why, why do people care what's happening in other people's uteruses? And part of answering that question is figuring out who is judging other people for what's happening inside their uteruses, who has disapproving attitudes towards abortion. So what do we already know about these kind of person level predictors of abortion attitudes? Which people um, or people with which attributes are more likely to have disapproving, stigmatizing attitudes towards abortion? So here, there, there's a lot of research in this area, but actually a lot of it is a bit messy and produces kind of mixed results. So there's a lot of research that says that older people are more likely to disapprove of abortion, but it seems as though those effects are specific to people who aren't parents. Um, so older people who are not parents tend to stigmatize or view a judge uh, abortion more harshly. 
So that finding is kind of messy. It's not necessarily the case that the older you get, the more like you, you are to have some disapproving attitudes about abortion, or even that it's a generational effect. Um, and older generations just see abortion differently. Another messy effect is religiosity. So if you read some of this research, you'll see people throwing around these kind of messy overgeneralizations that the more religious somebody is, the more negatively they view abortion. This just isn't true. So if you compare people with different religious affiliations, you can see there's tons of nuance there. So for example, there are a few research studies that have compared things like Muslims and Christians or comparing Jewish people and evangelicals. And in those cases, you can see there's tons of nuance. It's not just the case that people who are more religious have more stigmatizing and disapproving attitudes towards abortion. Um, in many cases, people who are Muslim or are Jewish are more supportive of abortion than other, other religious folks. Um, people with less experience in formal education tend to stigmatize it more. Men tend to stigmatize it more. But again, those findings are mixed. It depends on who you ask. Sometimes those gender effects are there. Sometimes they're not. Um, yeah, so there, there are some findings here that you'll see repeated in a lot of the literature. But just because people are saying something like um, older people or more religious people stigmatize abortion, the, the real story isn't always that clear cut. So what do we know about the contexts where abortion is more likely to be stigmatized? Um, if you have traveled the world or you follow global politics, or maybe you've got family living in other countries, you probably already know that the way people talk and think about reproductive health as a political issue it varies dramatically depending on the country that we're talking about, right? So what are some aspects of countries or contexts that might make it more likely that people are disapproving of abortion in that place? So there's some research which suggests that people who are living in places with more restrictive abortion legislation, meaning it's harder to get an abortion, or maybe it's impossible to get a legal abortion, people in those places are more likely to have stigmatizing attitudes towards abortion. Um, people who live in places where religion is considered more important in their communities, those people are more likely to stigmatize abortion. And then people who live in places where self-expression is more highly valued um, are, are more likely to have disapproving attitudes towards abortion. And these are these are places where a way to think about this kind of dimension. So this is a cultural dimension that ranges from self-expression values to survival values. So you can think of this as an indicator of privilege. Um, how many resources, how many support um, mechanisms are available at your disposal? Do you have enough privilege to prioritize your self-expression over your survival needs. Meaning these are people who aren't thinking about, um, am I going to have enough calories today or do I have a safe place to sleep tonight? Right? So there's a little bit of work that can highlight some areas and some cultural dimensions that might be related to abortion attitudes, 
but there is there's actually shockingly little cross-cultural research about abortion attitudes. So there's a lot of development that needs to happen here so we can begin to speak intelligently about in which contexts do people view abortion more positively or more negatively. So this is the bit where we come in. What don't we know about attitudes towards abortion? So there are a few person-level predictors, meaning these are attributes of individual people that might make them more or less likely to disapprove of abortion um, that haven't really been investigated sufficiently. So I talked a bit about kind of the messy findings that link religiosity and abortion attitudes. Part of those explaining those messy findings, that it's not the case that everybody who's more religious is more disapproving towards abortion. If that is not the case, then which features of your religion might specifically be linked to disapproving of what somebody else does with their uterus? Um, and one thing that we are investigating is this kind of candidate factor is belief in a big or a moralizing God. This means that you believe that God personally intervenes in human affairs um, and specifically ways that that probably happens are punishing bad people and rewarding good people. So we thought that this might allow us to capture some of that nuance where it's not the case that everybody who is more religious, who finds religion as a more important aspect of their life, is more likely to stigmatize abortion. Could it be that people who see God as um, this kind of big parental figure in the sky who punishes bad people or rewards good people, is it is it people with that belief that are more likely to stigmatize abortion? So we're exploring that. We also explore people's individual sexual strategies, their sexual and romantic strategies. So there's some really cool research that finds that people's attitudes about sex in their own lives predict their voting behavior on certain issues better than their political affiliation, which is really fascinating. So uh, one of these behaviors is, um, these voting behaviors is, voting for drugs to um, be legal, the legalization of certain drugs like marijuana. And research suggests that people with more liberal attitudes about their own sexual lives tend to have more politically liberal voting behaviors. Um, so we here are kind of replicating that and proposing that people who have more constrained and maybe less liberal attitudes about their own sexual lives might be more likely to judge other people for exercising sexual and reproductive freedom. Another thing that we're looking into here, it's something that's been theorized about a lot, but not studied empirically, like with data. And this is motherhood beliefs. So a lot of people theorize, why do we even stigmatize abortion at all, right? A lot of people theorize that we stigmatize abortion because motherhood or parenthood is seen as an essential ingredient in womanhood and femininity, but parenthood is not seen as an essential ingredient in manhood and masculinity. So when a woman decides to terminate a pregnancy, which by the way, women aren't the only people who need abortions, but when a woman, a woman decides to abort a pregnancy, she's violating this expectation that she will always want to be pregnant. She will always want to have a child. 
And then finally, something we're investigating is shame proneness. So people who are more prone to experiencing shame, meaning I've made a mistake or I've done something wrong and somebody's found out about it. And now I, I personally feel like a worse person because of it. I see myself more negatively because of it. People who are like that are more likely to moralize and judge other people's behavior in all kinds of domains. It hasn't been investigated with abortion before, but people who punish themselves more harshly for mistakes tend to moralize and judge other people's behavior more across the board. So for country level predictors, what don't we know? Now there's a lot of work from demography, um, sociology, and economics, which suggests that gender inequality in lots of places, so gender inequality in education, gender inequality in politics, in economic freedom, all gender inequality in all of these places plays a really key role in shaping gender inequalities in health. Um, so we know that already. We don't know the extent to which those gender inequalities might be tied to the way that people think about gender and sex related health issues like access to um, safe and legal abortion. So what did we do? We did uh, a survey study of people's abortion attitudes. This was back in March of 2022. So this was a year ago. Um, and we wanted to know, again, this kind of organizing question is, why the hell would people judge other people for their reproductive choices? Um, so what kinds of values and attitudes and beliefs do people have who are judging other people for their reproductive choices? That's what we're asking here. So we recruited people from four different countries, from uh, Mexico, the US, India, and the UK to participate in our study. And we measured all of those variables that I told you about on the last couple of slides. So those person level and country level predictors that hadn't really been sufficiently addressed in previous research, we wanna know to what extent does the amount of gender inequality in your country relate to your personal attitudes about abortion? Should people be able to get abortion when they need it? Um, your attitudes about sex. Are you cool with casual sex? Do you have relatively liberal attitudes about sex for yourself? Well, how do you feel about abortion for other people, right? If people have relatively liberal attitudes about their own sex lives, they probably need tools to control their uh, reproduction, right? So we measured all of those things in four different countries. And so our participants were uh, an average of 41 years old. We had a pretty even split of people who identified as women and people who identified as men. Most of them had at least some university education. Most were heterosexual. Um, most had children. We had diversity, a lot of diversity in the place that we cared about the most, which was their political orientation. So we had an equal representation of people who considered themselves left or liberal or who considered themselves more right-leaning or more conservative. So we should be capturing a lot of variability in terms of people's political ideologies, which is what we want. So what did we find? Uh, there's a lot going on here. So I'm gonna talk you through it. These are correlation coefficients, 
which just measures basically how strongly and in what direction two things are related to one another, right? So if these numbers have little stars next to them, that means that it is a statistically significant relationship, meaning this relationship is strong enough that we can be pretty sure it's because there's a real relationship between these two variables, these two values, these two beliefs, um, and that we're not just seeing this as kind of noise or static or something that's due to chance. So that's what is going on here, basically. Um, and, and what did we find? So if you look down that first column, that is abortion attitudes. So every row is going to show you how each of our variables related to abortion attitudes. And we found, as predicted, people who had more traditional attitudes about gender, people who, so those would be people who think that people should be treated differently because of their gender, people should have different responsibilities at home because of their gender, people should have different jobs outside of the home because of their gender, those people were more likely to view abortion more negatively. And people who had a more conservative sexual strategy also were more likely to disapprove of abortion. So these are people who uh, are uncomfortable with casual sex, they don't have a lot of experience with casual sex, they don't have a lot of desire for casual sex. They, they really only feel comfortable with sex in the context of a committed long-term relationship. For moralizing gods, we again found a relationship there. So the more that people thought that God is intervening in the lives of humans, punishing bad people, rewarding good people, the more likely they were to disprove uh, of abortion. And the more people believe that motherhood is this essential ingredient in womanhood, that women aren't fulfilled or happy without children, they also uh, stigmatized abortion more, people who were more shame prone, and it was specifically negative self-evaluation. So I've done something bad or somebody has caught me doing something I shouldn't do. I now feel like a horrible person because of that. Those people were more likely to have disapproving attitudes towards abortion. And then this was just exploratory, but we put in, I've labeled this sex politics, but it's just basically people's political beliefs about various sex-related issues. So do you have conservative or liberal attitudes about comprehensive sex education in schools? Do you have conservative or liberal attitudes about um, same-sex or same-gender marriage? Do you have conservative or liberal attitudes about pornography and sex work? And unsurprisingly, people who had more conservative attitudes about all of that political shit were also more likely to disapprove of abortion. So where or in which contexts were people more likely to disapprove of abortion? So we thought that people who live in places with more gender inequality and people who live in places with more strict abortion legislation, meaning it's harder to get a legal abortion, would have more negative attitudes about abortion. And if you just look at our correlations or you look at our regression models, which is kind of based on correlation, right? How are these variables related to each other and in what direction? Both of those 
hypotheses are supported. But if you look at the country level data, you can see that this is a bit more nuanced of a picture. So in each of these columns, you can see what the abortion legislation in those countries was like at the time that we collected our data. So in India and the UK, you can see that abortion is permissible based on more reasons than the reasons where abortion is permissible in Mexico and the US. So those are places where there is, I mean, it's it's easier to get an abortion if you can get a, an abortion for more reasons, right? Um, so in those places, people had the highest values, meaning, so support for abortion from zero to 10, that's just how many times or in how many different contexts did people say, yeah, this person should be able to access an abortion. We asked them 10 different scenarios. Should this person be able to get an abortion uh, just because they want to? Should this person be able to get an abortion because uh, they want to prioritize their career? Should this person be able to get an abortion because um, of their own health? Maybe their own health is at risk if they retain the pregnancy, right? So these different scenarios, should you be able to get an abortion? So the more times you said yes, the higher your value is, meaning you have more uh, positive or more approving attitudes towards abortion in a wider array of contexts. So if you have more, um, if you have easier access to legal abortion, you've got more positive attitudes towards abortion. The bit that's messy is gender inequality. So if you look at GII, that's a gender inequality index. And the closer that number is to one, the more inequality there is in that particular country as a function of gender, right? So this is where it gets messy because as you can see in India and the UK, the places with the least and the most gender inequality in our sample, that was where you found that people had the most supportive attitudes towards abortion. So it seems like if gender inequality and abortion legislation are at odds, then abortion legislation is probably more strongly shaping people's abortion attitudes. So I have a couple of figures that I wanted to show you that illustrate how important it is to take culture into account when we're talking about people's abortion attitudes. So I told you before that our predictors kind of across the board, all these different things predicted how people felt and thought about abortion. Right. So overall, people who believed in big gods were more disapproving of abortion. That is true. But if you allow for variation between the countries that we sampled, you can see that it's not the case in every context. So belief in big punishing or rewarding gods was associated with more disapproval of abortion everywhere except India, except in our Hindu context. And the strength of those relationships, they were strongest in Mexico and the US. So the relationship between belief in a big punishing God and disapproval of abortion was the strongest in Mexico um, and the US, which are both um, Christian, Catholic places and places where um, there is religiosity tends to be higher than in our other Judeo-Christian context, which was the UK. 
And then motherhood beliefs. This is another one where country really mattered, right? Overall, people who see motherhood as more central or essential to womanhood are more disapproving of abortion, right? But there really was, if you allow for this country between country variation, you can see that this relationship between these motherhood beliefs and disapproval of abortion was only significant in Mexico and the U.S. So there's something specific about those two contexts where seeing or conceptualizing motherhood this way would mean that you're more likely to view someone else negatively for their reproductive choice. So what did we learn? Really, kind of the big takeaway from this is both person and place matter. If we want to ask the question, right, how are abortion attitudes formed? Why would people judge someone for their abortion experience? Why do norms exist that regulate other people's abortion choice? When you're asking that question, the only way to answer it is to take into account both person and place. So that is our quantitative data. And I'm going to pass you back to Nicole to talk about our interview data. Yeah, so um, our time has really flown by. And so I'm excited to talk to you about uh, the interview data and share with you some of the stuff that we have. So Laura spoke very expertly about the quantitative arm of our research. And I'm going to share with you about the qualitative work that we do. So for those who aren't as familiar with the quantitative, qualitative pieces, while quantitative uh, focused on those numbers and looking at these sort of big samples and population sizes, uh, qualitative research is really focused on the stories and pulling from the stories, the lived experiences. And we're not specifically concerned with generalizability, but really understanding things from that story perspective. And we figure that if we can gather enough stories, then we can figure out ways to create some change. So Laura and I started this work in 2019. Um, she's a feminist evolutionary psychologist, a brilliant feminist evolutionary psychologist. And so it means that she has all this knowledge about the ways that we as humans have thought about reproductive decisions throughout our human history. Um, and there's lots of ways that we've conceptualized it and thought about it. I, on the other hand, am a counseling psychologist. Um, and so that means that I've thought a lot about and I've worked with people who are trying to live their best lives and make decisions about their reproductive agency the best way that's possible for them. So Laura has this keen ability to really understand numbers and what they tell us. And I'm really good at taking stories and tying them together to get a deeper picture of what's going on. So we make a really good team. So I tell you all that. Um, so typically, as Laura had mentioned earlier, we think about abortion attitudes as pro-life or pro-choice. Um, we think about them on this dichotomy Pro-choice is represents somebody's um, support or endorsement of the right to terminate a pregnancy for any reason or have positive views toward that procedure. Um, Pro-life or sometimes anti-choice is most stereotypically represents people's um, endorsement of not terminating a pregnancy for any reason. But what's really interesting about this is that even within the dichotomy, when it's presented, there's a wide variance in how folks think about these two things. So someone who identifies as pro-choice could truly believe that you can terminate for any reason at all. Um, or they could believe that it's just something that you should have access to, but it should be restricted. Uh, for people who have pro-life views, you might have people who support abortion in a very limited circumstance to so think about um, in cases of rape or incest, or you have people who believe that the procedure should be completely and totally banned. So 
this, and so as we think about this, you know, there's overlap between those two ideas in there. Um, and it's why considering these as a dichotomous variable is actually really limiting. And so we wanted to think from our participants' perspectives. We wanted to ask them, like, how did they think about abortion? What did they think about it? How do they define it themselves? And we heard things like, I would definitely consider myself to be pro-choice. I would consider abortion to be a right and is always the choice of the mother or the person carrying a child. We had another participant who said, um, it's just a completely personal choice. And I don't think anybody else has the right to make a decision for somebody else. Another quote, I would say that I believe that practicalities can sometimes play its part. And I respect women's freedom to make the choice uh, that fits their circumstances. We had somebody who said, if the baby that you're carrying is going to bring you problems or health issues, I think it's a right to abort you just to guide your own well-being. Um, or I think it's critical to a woman's life. So referring to access to abortion, to be able to decide whether or not she wants to have children. And it often determines what kind of a job she can get, what kind of an income she can have, what kind of neighborhood she can live in and her health. So we kind of see, while well, few people actually came out and said um, that they were specifically pro-choice or specifically pro-life or pro-abortion or whatever label you want to add to them. Um, they are giving us these ideas that we ended up labeling, identifying as pro-choice. But what's really interesting is that as we were talking to these women, we would find out that while they thought that they were strictly pro-choice, even bordering on pro-abortion for several of them, they actually had a really hard time not placing restrictions on when an abortion was okay and when it wasn't okay. And this is where we really start to see how stigma and shame can rear their heads in abortion discourse and in talking with folks who've had an abortion. abortion. So this is a participant, Reggie. Um, Reggie said, if the baby that you're carrying is going to bring you problems, health issues, I think it's right to abort just to guide your own well-being. And then went on to say, uh, it was quite hard for me to resist the idea of losing my baby because at that time I had to put my health first. So Reggie did have an abortion. And so, yeah, I just considered having one for my health. But you can see some, some struggle in there and needing to justify that decision for, for an abortion. Another participant, Rachel, uh, one of the few who actually used the language pro-choice. Uh, and so she said, yeah, so I'm 100% pro-choice. Uh, and then went on to say, for her thinking about herself, a hypothetical abortion for herself, I think it would be a very difficult decision for me because nothing about my circumstances, my lifestyle choices, my financial situation would support having a baby, but I think I would keep it anyway. So this idea of her struggling um, on her own to, uh, to be okay with having an abortion. Freya was another participant, so I would consider myself to be pro-choice. I would consider abortion to be right, to be a right, and is always the choice of the mother or the person carrying the child. And I don't feel strongly that I want children. I think there would be a voice in the back of my head that would be questioning or unsure about having an abortion. And so we, we got these interviews, and we're looking at them, and we're thinking, how do we make sense of all this? How do we put these things together? So they're saying they're pro-choice or, or they're, the language they're using is coded for pro-choice, but they can't imagine a hypothetical abortion for themselves or find reasons to justify their own abortions. And it was really baffling to us, to be honest, us and our research team, and took us a while to kind of wrap our heads looking at lots of different ways to explain what was going on. And what we came around to is this idea of it's okay for you, but not for me. Um, so we really started digging into this idea that our participants and probably us too are essentially holding double standards for ourselves. And so what does that mean as we try to make abortion care widely accessible? So 
we started to conceptualize this as whether we want it to be or not, the decision to continue a pregnancy or to terminate has become moralized. And as Laura's discussed, there's different cultural, social, personal factors that are involved in that moralization. But regardless, it's there. And we pass moral judgment on people for the choices that they make. But we also really struggle with being honest about that. It's really hard to kind of identify that for ourselves. And we do this through impression management. So we think about when our participants signed up for a study that was examining abortion attitudes, they probably assumed our stance on abortion um, and practice impression management, telling us what they thought and what they do believe are these pro-choice statements. And then as we dug more into those statements, we get to a spot where it's maybe not as firm or as non-restrictive as what they imagined. And our additional thought in this is this holding this stance, it's okay for you, but not for me. Then we're wondering if they are really okay with someone's choice to terminate a pregnancy with no restrictions. Um, And so to be honest with you, I identify as pro-abortion. I believe that people should have access to abortion when and where they want it. Um, and if, but if we were sitting in conversation and you started asking me more specific questions, you'd also likely to find some holes in my logic on it. And I might start to find some places where I think there should be restrictions to it. But that's a personal conviction for me. And it's important to my identity. And research tells us that the strength of that conviction is going to be tied to how I talk about that with people and how I process other information coming in about it. And so this idea begs the question, if it's not okay for me, is it really okay for you, right? So thinking about this. And we think that that's actually connected with research that shows um, examples of like, if I hold myself to these high perfectionistic standards, and then I'm really cruel to myself when I fail that standard, I'm doing the same thing to other people in my life. Another example is that people tend to be, people who are less compassionate for their own mistakes and their own experiences tend to be less compassionate to others as a whole. As humans, we're really not great at separating these two things, our ability to hold one thing for us and hold another thing for another person. Um, and we, and, and this comes because we rely on these really quick ways of process thinking. We excel at believing what we wish to believe and sometimes even in the face of disconfirming evidence. Okay. Another thing that I just want to point out is that we've also did a sister study to this in the U.S. Um, and we're not actually seeing the same pattern in the United States in that data um, we are thinking that that's probably because the U.S. is so deeply polarized. Uh, interestingly enough, we collected data between the Supreme Court leak regarding the Dobbs and Roe v. Wade decision. And then when that actually came out. So, I mean, like just right in between. And that was not on purpose. That's just uh, kind of what happened. But instead, we see a really consistent belief in the importance of abortion as a way for women to maintain control in their lives. And we're thinking that has to do with the way that people need to be internally consistent when you're kind of faced with the political pressures and experiences that we've got. Regardless, though, it's not stopping people from accessing abortion, pair, uh, abortion care, um, but we're thinking about how that internalized stigma affects those who've received their own abortions or how that externalized stigma affects those who might want to talk about the abortions they're receiving. And if you're pursuing a termination, you have to go to a clinic to do so. Um, And that experience can be a lot of different things. Um, We wanted to, something that came out of the data was the idea of what is a good termination? How how do people control their own reproductive decision-making? And so for those who had terminations in our original studies, um, their experiences really varied. Some people had these really good experiences where they felt comfortable and like they weren't alone in the process. Um, we, so we, one person who thought about, uh, staff member was giving them all the information they needed and felt really comfortable with that. 
Um, another was really affirming and that they were making the choice that was right for them. And others really struggled with their termination experiences. Um, and so we wanted to look into what was happening with those. So a couple of things that we found, first being this idea of positive experiences with staff. So in interviews, participants explained that a caring staff ultimately was part of that uh, affirming experience rather than it becoming shame or guilt-inducing. Um, so having that kind and caring staff, being able to be contact with them um, where they didn't feel that they were being stigmatized, um, that was really critical for them. This also included... Um, staff who emphasized choice for participants. So that felt really important for them um, and not feeling pressured kind of any direction, uh, but just allowing people to go through the termination process. Another finding is what we've labeled knowledge as power. So um, over and over and over again, our participants discuss that they just don't have good knowledge about anything really around sex education, that most of that comes from uh, peers and media. Um, not always great places to get our sex education from. Um, so we had some participants who said that when they were thinking about abortion, they had these, they had a lot of myths in mind. I talked to them about those earlier, that they were really fearful, that they felt like shit, like that we were really concerned not knowing what was going to be happening and feeling like clinic staff weren't sharing those things with them. Um, and they endorsed a lot of myths and having staff who could talk to them about those myths or could deep unendorse them, I guess, help them understand that they're not real, that that was really helpful. Another piece we found is what we've labeled as medical empathy. Um, so staff are doing kind of the same jobs every day, similar to you and I, we work, we have our jobs, we've got our routines, we know what we're doing. Um, and so staff members were, um, uh, many uh, clients, many of our participants felt like they could sometimes be objectified in that, where their individuality and humanity were not being recognized as they were receiving care. Um, we had several participants who used the phrasing that it felt like they were on a conveyor belt. Um, so you do this and this and this and this, and that staff were treating them in that way um, and feeling like the staff were really detached. And so one of the things that we think a lot about here are, are enhancing these soft skills with staff. So the empathic care um, staff, I didn't, when we talked to some staff about these findings, they talked about just having more time with patients, being able to talk to them more about what was going on um, and that that would be helpful. And then our last piece that we found um, is this idea of extended support. And before I really talk about this, I do want to say that about half of people who seek abortions report that they struggle to decide to have an abortion. But for that group, 70% um, of them identify that they're concerned about stigmatization, that they'll feel from their social support circles and groups. Um, but typically, our, the, the sort of general research is that within five years, 95% of women who had an abortion feel either feel nothing about their abortion, it was just sort of a medical thing that they did in the past, or they have positive feelings about their termination with no regrets. So with that said, though, participants did share that for those who had wished they'd had extended support past their termination, um, they had some ideas of that they knew that there was this extra support out there, but they didn't know how to get it. And having been in that termination experience, they weren't in a space to sort of understand or hear those things. So making sure that that is accessible um, post-termination. Um, and, and many participants didn't really want that support either. They wanted to kind of put it behind them, again, see it as a healthcare procedure, and that's kind of it. Um, 
So sort of looking ahead to what's next for us, um, we're continuing our research. I mentioned that we had collected a bunch of data in the United States. And so we're in the process of examining that data and thinking about what we are wanting to do next. I'm gonna let Laura talk a bit about our future directions and we've already gone over our time. So we'll pass it back to everybody in a second. <laughs> yeah, we have gone over time. I mean, really, I can be actually very quick about our uh, our future directions. Um, there's, a, I mean, there's a lot that we still want to know that we want to understand better. Um, there, we need to understand how culture and abortion attitudes are related. So we need to specifically, now that we've looked at cross-cultural variability in abortion attitudes, what aspects of someone's culture might shape the way that they view abortion? Um, and like I mentioned earlier, right, it's not just women who need abortions. So we want to understand how trans people feel about the abortion care that they're receiving. Um, are they pleased with the abortion care? Do they receive gender affirming abortion care? Are they aware of their reproductive health options? Um, there's lots that we still wanna know. And thank you for listening to us. Um, we recently were in Atlanta together for a conference and that is where that picture comes from, where we were drinking and having a wonderful time. And um, thank you all so much. Straight into the Q&A So let's get ready for some excellent questions If I can see what I'm doing over this cat butt <laughs> Okay, so our first question comes from Cleo And she asks, is there any evidence for simple misogyny As a factor in anti-abortion attitudes? Yes <laughs> Um, there certainly is. Um, it is, it's about control of women. So, you know, um, at least particularly in the United States, um, and that's really, I'll speak more to the U.S. and Laura can speak potentially more to the U.K. and globally. Um, in the United States, there is definitely about control of women. Um, we know that um, from the Turnaway study, right, those who uh, are denied abortion, they just overall have worse outcomes, um, which means it's easier to control them. Um, and so that's deeply misogynistic when women have control over their reproductive health, um, including contraception, abortion, um, all kinds of things, then uh, they have better outcomes. They can make more money. They can have better life experiences, lived experiences. So yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and from kind of a, the, the quantitative perspective, like what data is out there linking, um, kind of misogynistic attitudes towards abortion attitudes, there is some data which finds that people who are more um, benevolently sexist, so people who um, who believe that women should, they need more help or they need to be helped more, they need uh, more support because they're unable to take care of themselves. You know, a lot of times this is like positioned as chivalry in some cultural contexts. This is even conceptualized as politeness, right? Uh, I'm going to hold the door for you because you're less able to do shit for yourself. Those kind of attitudes in particular seem to pretty well predict uh, anti-abortion attitudes, right? So it's there, there probably is a specific flavor of sexism that lends itself well to this kind of idea that I know better than you about your own reproductive choices. So I'm going to, to cast judgments on you and assume that you don't know what's best for yourself, right? That kind of domination element to benevolent sexism, it seems conceptually 
tied to what's going on when you judge someone for having an abortion. That's really interesting. So, like, has has there been research that looks specifically at the difference between abortion attitudes between people who have like that benevolent sexism versus um, uh, outright hostile sexism? And and yeah, and also benevolent. Yeah, it's really interesting because it does seem like it's benevolent and ambivalent sexism. So, people who are high on both that seems to uniquely predict anti-abortion attitudes as opposed to hostile sexism, which is, like you said, is just sort of this outright uh, dislike for women or seeing women as trying to get shit that they're otherwise not entitled to. Um, Right. Okay. Our next question comes from Eagle and he asks, is it just about control of women or are there some other weird issues that make cisgendered men so interested in the bodily autonomy of other people? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think, again, um, so some of what Laura, that's part of what we're trying to figure out, right? And some of like what Laura was talking about is um, how much of it is, what is driving it, right? So there, there is, you know, like, not all men hate abortion, right? And so what are the reasons why some men do and why some men don't? Um, what are the gender effects on that? Women also can be very cruel about abortion, right? And so I, I think to say that it's only cis men who are problematic in limiting reproductive rights, um, there's a lot of women who are out there doing the same thing. Um, and so I think the labeling it of like this idea of misogyny is um, is, a, is a fair label and that that misogyny can be both internalized and from other and from external sources. Yeah, and... Can I add, so just a bit, I think like, it's interesting, this idea that it would be, is it about controlling women's bodies or is it just about controlling bodies in general? Um, It's interesting because when we think about reproductive issues, I mean, I think there is a relationship between gender and power, which, which pulls in women's bodies, um, at least for some women, right, that, that do and can get pregnant. But there's also a lot of things about reproduction can be observed by other people, which makes them more likely to be targeted by other people as a place for their judgments, right? So pregnancy at a certain point for most people who become pregnant is something that you you can't hide. Uh, so people then cast judgments on you, right? And once your baby is born, how you're feeding your baby, these are things that happen publicly and socially. So when and how those judgments are made, yes, I, I'm sure there's something to do with gender and power here. Um, but it's also there's something about reproductive choice uh, and and reproductive experience. Some of it is put on display for other people, um, which gives them the opportunity to put in their two cents. Yeah, it does seem to be like to unique like parenthood, especially like if you if you're the one that's pregnant. Um, it does seem to have a huge amount of stig- stigma attached to it from very different directions. Like, because even if you do, if a person decides to have the child, then, as you said, there's loads of judgments about how the child is fed, how they're raised. Um, and often you hear people saying things like, well, one, I, I don't agree with abortion. You shouldn't be having sex unless you are prepared for um, the possibility the of becoming pregnant. And yeah. then... Um, yeah, if people do um, have children, they're off, there's often judgments about, well, 
well, that person was too poor, they should never have, or like their life is too unstable or, or too odd. It's it's ridiculous. There is no winning on this topic. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that is hard about this topic, right? Like there's not like full bodily autonomy is really the goal here, right? You do you and I'll like live my life. Like let's just kind of, you know, um, and I think about even the framing of, as you were saying, Kat, the framing of, well, if you didn't want to get pregnant and have that consequence, you shouldn't have even been having sex. Well, sex is fun and it's good and it's pleasurable and I deserve pleasure. And I should also be able to like, if I accidentally got pregnant, make a choice about it. That's like, that just is. And that is how it should be. I agree. <laughs> I am real passionate. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've always found this something like absurd about the idea that anybody could end up having a child as punishment. It's it's just that's not good for anyone. It's not good for the child. Like it it's just a bizarre circumstance to bring a new person into the world. (laughs) Right, right, absolutely. And and we know like from attachment literature and these other areas. We know that if you are, if that child is not wanted, there's worse outcomes for that child the entirety of their life, right? Um, and so, like, don't we want every child to be wanted? Like, wouldn't that be the ideal? And the way that we can do that is having access to contraception and abortion, you know? Yeah. I wonder how much that ties into the myth of, like, yes, but once you have the child, something magical will happen. And all of a sudden, you'll figure out how to be a parent and all that. Anyway, so I'm, I'm sure it is tied to that. A little bit too much <laughs> no, now. <you're> good. <laughs> um, we've got another question from Eagle, and he asks, "What do you think is the biggest source of misconceptions about this topic? Evil people doing their evil job, or useful idiots repeating stuff they don't know?" Oh wow! I really I love this question. Um, it's interesting because so the way that I can speak to this somewhat intelligently is to lean on my experiences with uh, reproductive healthcare staff. So kind of this next step in our research process is translating what we have learned into something that can make people's experiences of abortion care better, right? So we've got partnerships with people who are doing this work um, who can, can help us figure out a way to use what we've learned to make people's experiences better. And from what I've learned from them, when they reflect on particularly healthcare staff as a source of abortion stigma, which is something that we haven't specifically looked into, but has been studied, right? Um, Typically, what they reflect is it's their colleagues and their friends who think that they're doing what's best for people when they when they advise them against getting a termination, right? So if we look at these mechanisms of abortion stigma or anti-abortion rhetoric, I think in most cases, it's people who feel like they're doing what's best. And really, if you believe these abortion myths, why wouldn't you want to talk someone out of making this decision in a callous way? If you really believe that abortion is going to be a, a painful, emotionally painful, scarring experience, which the data suggests that most people feel great about their abortions, But if you believe that, you would want to caution people against it. If you believe that getting an abortion will increase your risk of breast cancer, which is an abortion myth that has been incredibly prolific, uh, you would want to discourage them from getting it. If you believe that having an abortion is going to decrease your likelihood of having safe, healthy pregnancies later, 
right? All of these are legitimate reasons to caution someone against making this choice. I really do feel like if people were equipped with accurate information about abortion, uh, that a lot of these issues would uh, would disappear. Yeah. There's an interesting parallel there between how I've started to try and think about um, people who hold really strong anti-vax beliefs. Like, they're not motivated by wanting more people to get sick. For some reason, they genuinely believe it's it's a health hazard. And so they think they're fighting the good fight. But inadvertently, they're causing a huge amount of problems for a huge amount of people. Um, so our next question is anonymous. And they ask, is there any data on how people change their minds on abortion? Education, perhaps. Yeah, so the the best, okay, so there's a couple of ways to kind of think about how people change their minds. So one is um, more representation of positive abortion stories in, in media. Um, so one of the things that staff members talked to us about was, uh, staff members at clinics talked to us about, was wanting to have a way for people to have anonymized experiences kind of on the walls so people could see that it's not this scary horrific you're going to have these horrible outcomes kind of thing but even having uh positive abortion stories in movies and television where lives weren't destroyed because they had an abortion um and and it was just a part of their life right like it was just a healthcare decision they made those go a long way in uh creating more conversation about it some of the best data or some of the best research that talks about changing people's minds um, is really focused on relationships and relationship building. And it is not, you know, a, a lot of that talks about, um, I, I do political organizing um, in Texas. And one of the things that we really try to do is focus on creating relationships within in neighborhoods. Because when people know you, they're more willing to listen to the things that you have to say. And when you go in saying, I'm going to change your mind about abortion, and I need you to know that abortion is good, and, you know, like the whole thing, no one's going to listen. They're immediately going to become defensive to that. And when you try to present a, you know, a pamphlet about the education on abortion and why it's all these things, people also don't want to listen to that because it immediately puts them on the defensive because everything that they've learned or know is now being attacked, right? And so the way that you do it is a long process. It's a lot of work and it's developing, it's through relational change, right? And that's really how, that's really how you do it. Um, it is, it is not a sexy process. It is not a quick process. And I think that's, what's really hard for people to kind of understand um, is, is how long it actually takes to try to get people to do this. But Doing more research on abortion is a big thing. Getting that research out and talking about it, that that's an important thing. Because for everybody who heard our talk today, you got something from it and you're going to take that and you're going to go tell somebody else about it, right? And that is how it kind of trickles out to, to gather into more conversation. I think something that I certainly have um, thought about a lot, especially since like the um, the laws around abortion have changed a lot in a lot of uh, different states in America. Is I've seen a lot of people making the argument of um, like just these like really good soundbite arguments where it's like it's not a baby, it's a bunch of cells. And I wonder like is that actually actively unhelpful? Because <laughs> one, it, it's quite hurtful to people who have miscarriages 
because mm-hmm. like to people who lose very wanted baby uh, very wanted pregnancies that absolutely is a baby from the moment that they know it exists and on the other hand i worry whether it makes people who are pro-choice sound like they're flippant about it and it, it sounds callous almost and I, I wonder if there's any research on on those kind of arguments and what those effects have on on like pro-choice movement yeah I don't know of any formalized research and Laura might um what I know is that a lot of those sound bites don't get seen beyond the circles that they're already being seen in um and I think that that's one of the things that is not helpful about them. Um, so if I think about like my Instagram, it is well curated among people who share very similar beliefs than I do. And it is locked down, right? Like no one's seeing my stuff unless I allow you to see my stuff. And so when I share pro-abortion things, that's going to the same people who share the same views that I do. It's not going anywhere else. And so I don't know how helpful it is. I'm also not sure how harmful it is from like a reproductive health perspective. I do think that flippant comments like that can be very harmful to folks who um, are struggling with infertility or or things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's I mean, you bring up a really good point, Kat. And I think there is I'm not aware of any research that specifically looks at that kind of messaging and how it affects people's abortion attitudes. But it, it does make me think of this sort of idea about like a baby or a, a collection of cells or like a lot of people who are working in abortion care will refer to it as a pregnancy, um, those sorts of things, how that language affects the way that people receive that messaging. But there is some work which suggests that the extent to which people feel like life is sacred, right? So these sort of sanctity of life beliefs tend to be really key in driving people's anti-abortion sentiments. Um, so when we talk about it as a life and life as pure or holy, that those are the kind of ideas that tend to drive anti-abortion um, sentiment. But Nicole is absolutely right. It's relationships that change people's minds, right? It's not sound, sound bites. It is, and some of this is even coming through in our data, people will say, even people who are raised in contexts that were kind of very anti-abortion will say that it was their personal exposure to someone in their life having a termination that changed the way that they thought about it. And really, if we all think about it, none of us have the opinions that we had, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. If we look at the things that change us, it is, it's personal relationships, right? It's knowing someone who's had an experience that then changes the way that I think about that experience. Um, And it's really hard to continue to maintain these stereotypes about what abortion is like when you're confronted with someone's reality of this is, this was their abortion experience. And that's coming across in the U.S. literature, or not the literature, sorry, the U.S. interviews that a lot of our participants um, you know, the U.S. is mostly rural, right? We've got some major metropolitan areas. The rest of it is rural. Um, when you think about the, um, the uh, uh, you know, people talk about losing access to abortion in the United area in Texas, specifically, where I live, the nearest abortion clinic before September 2021 uh, was three hours away. And you and that that's not that's not access. Right. So we already didn't have access to it anyway. So most people are uh, pro-life in some way or kind of on that pro-life, pro-choice spectrum, like kind of splitting the middle there. 
And so what Laura is saying, what they're saying, what they're telling us is that the things that changed their opinion on it was getting out of hometowns, meeting other people and meeting people who disclosed that they'd had an abortion. And that's what, that is what has turned them, turned them into pro-life folks. Or, sorry, I said pro-life, pro-choice folks. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> um, our next question comes from Cleo and she asks, has the satanic temple had any effect on attitudes in the US with their very pro-choice work? I think the satanic temple makes people who feel who are pro-choice pro-abortion feel like they've got people in their corner, right? Um, when you when you have the satanic temple, uh, you know, setting up, they recently set up an abortion clinic, the Samuel Alito's mother, something or other. Um, I think that it is nice because because of the rurality of the United States, because of how many of us feel like we're alone in what we're doing. It feels like, oh, there is a huge organization who stands behind us on this in the way that that the um, the church stands behind the uh, or, or the Republican Party, whatever, stands behind the uh, pro-life lobby. So I think it's nice in that way. I don't know if it has really changed attitudes on it. OK, um, our next question is from Nadia. And they ask, how reliable is qualitative data in terms of sincerity of participants' answers? Okay, so I'm talking a lot. <laughs> That's okay. Um, qualitative, okay, I love qualitative data. It is as reliable as you trust your participants. Um, so we trust our, as a qualitative researcher, our stance is to trust our participants and what they're telling us. One of the things that separates qualitative data from quantitative data is that when we publish our results, um, when we are writing our papers or presenting at conferences, we always talk about what's referred to as reflexivity. And so what are our biases that we bring to the work and how we're analyzing it and how exactly did we collect the data? So um, think about, I did a project several years ago where it, I was asking friends about their opinions on things. And so when I wrote that project up, for publication, that was part of my section of talking about where I got that data from is that they all had a personal relationship with the researcher. So we're very honest about that and we talk about that in our research. So how much, how trustworthy is it? I think that's up to the person reading it to try to decide based on the information that they're given. We trust our participants though and what they're telling us. Sure. Like I think you can easily ask the same question of quantitative data, right? Like people will sometimes not like either not have particularly good insight into their own beliefs and their own thoughts and feelings on things. And sometimes people just won't answer accurately. I mean, obviously, like, as you said, qualitative has that extra layer of, like, it, the information's being interpreted in, in a much more human way compared to data. But psychological research is messy. <laughs> it's just mm -hmm. always messy. It's so messy because you're dealing with humans, beautiful, wonderful humans who are complicated and messy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, our next question comes from Neil and they ask, is there a plan to monitor, is there a plan to monitor shifting attitudes in the US following the overturn of Roe v. Wade? Do you want to take that one, Laura? <laughs> yeah, I can. Um, so we like Nicole said, we kind of accidentally collected our data at this really hot time to be asking people how they're thinking about their own abortion experiences or what their expectations are if they were to seek out an abortion in the future. Right. So in that sense, we've we've kind of assessed 
um, how people are thinking about abortion in the U.S. in this weird in-between time where it's leaked that this might happen and that it actually does, right? Roe v. Wade is overturned. Um, so to that extent, you know, I think we have a pulse on what has happened at an important time. Um, but for us, kind of what our next step is, I'm sure there are tons of people who are doing research on this topic, kind of as it's unfolding, looking at people's abortion attitudes in the States as the uh, legislation is changing. But the next step for us um, is to explore pathways for impact. So we really want to figure out ways to convert our data into change in abortion care provisioning for people in the US and UK who participated in our studies. Spending a lot of time figuring out um, how to convert our data into changes in care provisioning. So an example of that would be, right, um, we talked about this idea of knowledge is power. People are showing up to abortion clinics not knowing what's gonna happen to them. Um, We are trialing informational pamphlets in clinics in the UK that will tell people what kind of care they can receive at that clinic. Um, and we'll give them information about maybe why the clinic seems so busy. So it's it's really busy. They have to wait a really long time. And uncertainty about what is happening behind those closed doors can, can make that wait seem unnecessary. So we're prioritizing figure out ways to convert our data into impact. And then the next areas for us to explore empirically, we really want to look at at trans experiences engaging with abortion care and reproductive health care. So what does this look like for people who are typically not centered or are left out of these abortion conversations overall, right? That's that those are some of the areas that we're going in the near future. But I'm sure that somebody is looking at how people in the U.S. are thinking about abortion as everything is changing, right? You know, I think if you, um, journalism is such a huge thing. And there's one particular journalist, uh, her name's Jessica Valenti. Um, and she does a, it's called Abortion Every Day. It's a Substack um, that she publishes every day about um, legislation that's been introduced. So, you know, we're in the midst of um, the legislative sessions, both federally and locally or at the state level. Um, and so she's really keeping a beat on that and she's really incredible to follow if you want to kind of see from a, a legal perspective, as well as collecting stories that people have. And so um, I think though that the landscape just is changing so quickly that it's really hard to even delineate. Like we have we have a clear like, you know, June 2022 pre and post, but it even by states, right? Like when states started um, allowing bands that had been on the books to go into, like some of those were in July and August. And so it's really hard to have like a clear, like this was the pre and this was the post and this is what's going on. Um, But I think following journalism is really good at your own risk, right? Because there's some really horrific stories that are coming out um, and horrific laws that are being being suggested. Um, And so I would say like, well, it's abortion every day. Maybe don't read it every day. If this is something that's really meaningful, like you hold dear to your hearts. Okay, so that was a substack called Abortion Every Day. Abortion Every Day with Jessica Valenti. Okay, hopefully our mods are quickly Googling that and uh, popping it in the (laughs) chat for us. Um, Our next question comes from 66Steve IRL, and they ask, it took ages and work for Ireland to reject anti-choices, but we beat anti-choices. That's probably, oh, anti-choices, sorry. (laughs) 
the, the language threw me off there. Um, but we beat them by 66%. Can that happen globally or will local religious cultists always win? Oh, wow. Yeah, that is, that's such a good question. Um, I think, so I, I continue to have an increasingly optimistic perspective about reproductive freedom the more work we do. I don't know how encouraging that is <laughs> to those who are watching this stream. Um, but I continue to have a more optimistic view uh, because I am seeing through our participants' eyes how how much their own opinions about abortion have changed through their lives. So a lot of our participants um, are uh, in middle age, right? We, we don't have a sample that is really young. And so we have people who are uniquely positioned to reflect on the way they thought about abortion as a function of the tiny area in which they were raised and those, those social relationships, those social influences, and how dramatically their perspective on abortion has changed as a result of their own unique developmental experiences. Um, so the more that people are exposed to the complex nuance that is people's real lived abortion experiences, the more the needle will shift. Um, right. Like you, you can no longer, <laughs> I love the meows in the background. You can no longer endorse this belief that abortion is only something that happens to bad or irresponsible people, or even people who are having unsafe, unprotected sex. If you know someone who is having a termination after having sex with a committed partner while using birth control, right. And that shit happens. You just can't eat. I think a lot of the ideas that form the structural basis of anti-abortion attitudes, they are flimsy in the extent to which I think they will break if they are confronted with information you can trust that is inconsistent. And, and information you can trust is not a soundbite on TV. It's somebody's real lived experience. Um, and abortion is so common, most of us know people with abortion experiences. I guess that's the complexity of it really is that the more that people feel that they're safe and free to talk about their abortion experiences, the more people will think positively about abortion, right? Um, I don't know if any of that made sense. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the latest statistic that I heard was um, one in three women will have an abortion before the age of 45. That's a, that's a lot of people having them. But again, with the, with there being so much stigma for various reasons, though I I don't know very many women who will or very many people who will um, publicly say that they they've they've done that, and so that obviously makes it difficult to to move the conversation forward when people are, are so frightened to to talk about their own experiences. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like grassroots community movements could be a way to get the needle moving. So there's some experimental work that has invited participants into, I think it was a book club. It was framed as a book club and people read a book about reproductive justice or something. And those who were involved in the book club shared with other people who had previously been strangers about their own abortion experiences and people's attitudes changed. Right. It doesn't have to be that somebody in your social circle who, you know, right now suddenly feels empowered to tell you about their abortion. 
Um, we can do work in our communities to create spaces where people can safely be exposed to real, complex, nuanced abortion stories. Um, and I think I think that will create meaningful change. There's a, a website or an organization, Shout Your Abortion, um, that has like that collects stories um, for people of all kinds of stories. So starting with some people who had traumatic experiences, you know, they were raped and then they need to have an abortion. But then also most of them are just run of the mill. I didn't want to be pregnant. I didn't expect to get pregnant. I got pregnant. I had an abortion, right? Um, and that's such a, it's a great resource. I have most of my students look at it for one of the sections in the class that I teach so that they're just con- seeing the dailiness of it. What um what level of te- like is it for like first years that you teach on this topic or at, at what point in their education are they? I'm just wondering oh, about so, the complexities of of teaching this topic to younger people. Yeah, so um, the U.S. education system, higher education system, looks completely different. I'm completely baffled by y'all, as Laura has tried to explain to me several times. Um, so I mostly teach like what would be considered, I think, first year students, um, gen psych, and then I teach graduate counseling students. And so with my gen psych students, um, we're focused in on, I bring it up during our uh, uh, human sexuality section, um, and just introduce the ideas to them. Um, like this is most of them, as they're saying, like come with very strict, like are very, very set um, pro-life ideas. Um, or are really excited to be introduced to this concept because they've only heard about it one way and want to learn something else. Um, and so I have a lot of, I have a mixed bag of students on that. And so I don't know, I don't have them tell me if I've changed their opinions or anything, but I know that I give data and I give information to them. Um, and I invite them into looking into other experiences. Um, and I've had a couple of students who have come to me afterwards saying like, they'd never heard it this way before. Um, you know, they're coming from evangelical churches and and really religious upbringings and so they kind of all heard it one direction and so having another one was just nice just another point of view for my counseling students um i tell them all that they so are masters and doctoral students and that they're going to have at least one client in the time that they're practicing who is trying to decide if they want to keep a pregnancy or not um and so they need to examine their own biases and feelings around that and then introduce like how do you do termination counseling and what's uncomfortable about that and what's comfortable about that and um and kind of walk through that with them so okay um our next question is another anonymous one and they ask is there any data about people's opinions before they had to make a potential abortion decision versus the decisions they ultimately made so I'm not really sure, and maybe Nicole can speak to this, about people's kind of abstract political abortion stance before and after their own termination experiences. But I do know that data suggests kind of counter to popular opinion that people tend to feel pretty certain about their abortion decisions, um, that it's not typically this kind of decision that is necessarily fraught. Um, and that after they have their termination, they continue to feel pretty certain about their decision. But this kind of broader idea about like, what is, what's my opinion about abortion, which on which end of this kind of false dichotomy do I fall before or after my own termination experience that I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know of any research on that. Um, we've got some decisional models that get used, um, but it's not, 
Yeah, I don't know of any research on that specifically. It's an interesting question for sure. Um, we have another anonymous question. And they ask, do you know if women who have had abortions tend to withhold that information from children they might have later or potentially even children they've already had? Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they do. Um, they do. Well, and it really what what we're seeing, what we've seen in our own data and what's already out there in the published literature is that people use secrecy as a stigma management strategy. Right. Um, which, again, it kind of goes back to what we were discussing earlier. You know, how do we how do we restory abortion so people feel more free in their own reproductive choice? Um yeah, you've got to expose people to abortion narratives, but people are aware that this is a decision that will be judged and will be seen negatively. And there is a, a plethora of research which suggests that abortion stigma exists in different variations in most places in the world. Um, so if something has happened to you that you know is going to invite negative opinions, judgment, um, punishment, social isolation from other people, you're going to keep it private. And from talking to our participants, they do share their abortion stories with other people, but they're very deliberate about who they share their abortion stories with. So it would be very unlikely for somebody to share an abortion story with someone whose opinion about abortion is unknown to them. Um, they really carefully, you carefully curate who you disclose your termination to in your social circle uh, so that you know you'll be safe. And, and two, I, I want to say that for, um, it's kind of like, how do you bring that up? Like, when does that come up? You know, are you sitting at the dinner table and you're like, I had an abortion today, right? Or like, what? how, how exactly are we having that conversation? I think is a really, a real question too, of, of when do I disclose that? Or when do I say that? Particularly to like kids or family members or things like that. Um, when disclosure happens, it, it's usually in response to um, to having that that close group of friends that you know and you trust, um, but also somebody who's come to you and has said, like, I'm thinking about having an abortion, right? Like, what do I do next or that kind of thing? And so I'm trying to to make it just more of a spontaneous decision, right? Like I, you know, and, and that goes with a lot of healthcare decisions just generally, right? People aren't talking about their vasectomies at the dinner table, um, even though people have vasectomies. And so, um, you know, like figuring out ways to make healthcare conversations in general not stigmatized, um, not, not an uncommon thing to be able to ask about or talk about. Is there any research looking into who it is people most worry about disclosing that information to? Like, are they are they most worried about uh, judgment from peers or like maybe family members who they might perceive could potentially also feel like they were affected in some way by that decision? I believe it's family members and particularly parents and then even more particularly mothers. Um, and I, right, and, um, I think Laura talked a bit about the motherhood mandate, um, which is something that we're both really interested in. Um, and I, I think that that's part of it. So this... Um, you're a mom. I decided I didn't want to be a mom in this instance, or I didn't want to be a mom again. And so feeling a lot of perceived stigma around that. Um, and uh, people, I think, who are child-free tend to get more disclosure than folks who have kids. Um, again, for that fear of, like, you have kids, so you're probably going to judge me for not wanting a kid or not wanting a kid right now. Okay. Um, our next question is from Garnet. And they ask, the UN regularly calls for governments to decriminalise abortion, but never seem to push hard for it. 
um, should they promote it harder, given that it is a basic human right? I mean, yeah, I think so, which is going to be a very unsurprising opinion. Um, but the UN, the UN does classify abortion as a basic human right, right? Um, so yeah, I can see, I can see again potential for, and re- our data kind of speak to this, right? That like change is going to need to happen on both a personal and an institutional level, right? It's the person and the institutions that they're living within that create and maintain anti-abortion sentiment. Um, So we need both. We need change happening on an individual level. We need people talking to other people about abortion in different ways. Um, And we need institutions and structures to change as well. It's going to have to happen in both places um, for people to really be free, right? Okay. And for our final question, we're going to go back to Igor. And he asks, If you had a magical ability to implement one societal change that will help with that and maybe other similar issues like abortion and issues around abortion, what would it be? Money. (laughs) If I had the magical ability to just make sure everybody had enough money, a universal basic income or whatever, I know that that's for us in the United States. Um, Being able to do that um, would change so much for so many people. Um, not only around reproductive rights, um, because if you had money, so right now to leave Texas to have an abortion is costing about $10,000. So if you want to leave and go have an abortion, we have abortion funds that attempt to cover that and to help with that. Um, but if I just had, you know, $20,000 in the bank and I needed an abortion, I could use that and go get it and not have to rely on all these other things. So money would be the thing, which isn't, I mean, I guess it's impl- ma- my magical ability to create money for everybody and to get what everything that they need. That's what I would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or universal health care. <laughs> yeah. Or universal health care. <laughs> That's what I was about to say, Kat. <laughs> what is that? I don't even think about that because that's not even a thing I have. So. Yeah. Universal healthcare would totally help. Um, and something else too, that I think is part of this conversation, we're talking about like magically being able to implement something worldwide um, is that people can safely manage their abortions without having to engage with any sort of formal system, uh, including formal medical systems. So uh, a really, a really empowering change that could happen everywhere is to get people easy, immediate, and free access to tools to manage their own terminations at home. Um, Because, you know, we're talking about like these structures that constrain people's reproductive freedoms, but people have been managing their own terminations for pretty much as long as humans have existed. They've been terminating pregnancies and we can absolutely do it safely by ourselves. We have, um, yeah, we've got medicine that does it, and it's wonderful. AidAccess.org is an international group that works with uh, making sure people have access to abortion or to medical abortion to the abortion pill process. So that that was AidAccess.org? AidAccess.org, yeah. Okay, brilliant. I think... (laughs) I'm a bit worried that what I said about universal uh, healthcare was a bit glib because actually, it, even if that, that is something that's available to everyone, um, a lot of people still make re- reproductive decisions based on how much money they have. Like, So not having money could actually push somebody closer to, to having an abortion that they don't want to have when, so yeah, so yeah, just want, I think, needed I mean, to call myself up on that. No. I- and I understand. And I think that um, even if you had, 
universal healthcare is really critical, right? Because then we might have more access to doctors who can give us the correct medicine or, or nurse practitioners or anybody, midwives. Um, you know, I, I think that with it, um, gosh, I wish we could just change people's views on it. I wish it could be more of like, just like, let's just like let people live their lives and make the decisions that are best for them at the end of the day. That's what, that's like what I wish we could do. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Well, thank you both very much for the, for that talk and for that Q and A. Like, it's a really fascinating subject and a really important one. And figuring out how, like, how to have those conversations is, again, really, a really, really important topic. So, yeah, thank you both very much for your time tonight. I, like, I really appreciate it. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.